When the Seagulls will have to wait because you just won MLS Cup. It's That's So MLS, a North American soccer podcast with myself, Andrew Bates, and Nick Thornton. Hello. Welcome back. Um, it seems like we were just here making predictions, and it turns out we were both kind of right and both kind of wrong. Because um, <laughs> you, you predicted, um, I believe, 3-2 on penalties. A Seattle yeah, win, yeah. and I predicted a 2-1 win for Seattle in regular time. So you got the Seattle score right, I got the Toronto score right, you picked penalties, I picked not. So I feel like we had a, that's a, basically a correct prediction, right? I would say so. I think that, it, I think that things more or less went, uh, more or less went correct. I put you more on, the, more on the money, because you were really just a goal up. All right, I'll take it. I'll take it. But indeed, uh, MLS Cup has just taken place uh, as we speak. Um, hours previous, the Seattle Sounders are the MLS Cup champions for the second time uh, after facing Toronto in the final for the third time in four years. I've got my scarf on the wall from 2016. The split scarf. Support everybody. <laughs> I'm wearing my Guadalajara Shivas t-shirt to commemorate sports being played. I've got a Vancouver Whitecaps shirt on, which is also, I was at the 2016 MLS Cup, and I did sit in the away section with the Seattle supporters, and I thought, you know, this is sort of like the Warriors represented, like, I always feel when a neutral fan goes to the final, it's like the scene from the Warriors where all the games gather, so it's like... I've got to I've got to be wearing a Whitecaps jersey, so I I I'm like yes, I'm wearing my Whitecaps gear. Except it's so bitterly cold that I was never not covered yeah. in like a blanket worth of coat. So it was, it was never yeah. There was never a moment where it was particularly uh, recognized. No um, one for the but for the brief moment that I considered going down to Seattle for the final, I was like I I mean I have to go in full Whitecaps gear, obviously. Um, yes. Didn't work out that So I've got my Whitecaps gear on today. Um, I think that this was a pretty exciting final. How did you, uh, from from the neutral perspective, um, how did you like it? I thought it was a great game. Um, we talked last week about how overall the series, the, the playoffs themselves, have been great. Um, for the most part, the games have been really high tempo. There's been lots of good storylines. And... We talked last week as well about how is the final going to shape up? Are we going to be seeing something that's kind of a cagey match where they're two teams feeling each other out, or are they just kind of going to go for broke and go at each other? And I felt like this game had a bit of uh, balance to it, but overall was like a, a great game of soccer. CenturyLink was packed. I loved the TIFO displays. You know, I love that there was the the rave green and blue displays up across the entire stadium. It looked amazing. On television, it was loud. Um, so as a spectacle, I thought that this final really kind of brought, um, brought what it promised. The, this is an interesting point. I, I also uh, saw a tweet that the same sort of like big Seahawks banners that are around the stadium with big with the, the football players on it remained up but they digitally added scarves to all of them 
Okay. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a choice, but sure, why not? This was, I think, an interesting point. It, it broke the CenturyLink Fields attendance record. Wow. Um, with uh, 69,000. What's the number? I saw that. I had the number up here a second ago. Yeah, it was 69,000 um, something. 69,724 fans uh, breaking the, the CenturyLink, which is a great point to be like, I kind of feel that and there were features prior to the game to this effect tying what Seattle has done supporter-wise to what Toronto did when he entered the league in 2007. Um, but, you know, I joked about it in the intro of last week's episode, this idea of MLS 3.0 or MLS 2.0. It's like Seattle, I think, set about with the presentation of this game and also the play of the game um, – proving that it is as deserving of being considered a 3.0 team as as any of the other, like a team that succeeds in that this era of the league as those, uh, the Atlanta and the, and the LASCs of the world. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to not argue. I mean, especially in terms of a, an expansion franchise, um, since they've joined the league, it, it's really hard to, I mean, they are the most successful New era MLS team. That's correct, um, and it's it's funny because they have that transitional, you know, they have that transitional quality where I feel like they were they weren't the first team to use designated players, obviously, but like they had a lot of trying to see what stuck in terms of Freddie Lindbergh and uh, Obafemi Martins and stuff like that. And some of the some of their DP through history have been very successful and some of them have not. And I feel like they're also sort of dominant in the TAM era yeah. of, of of finding players that are like that, 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 uh, that fit into those roles. Um, I really enjoyed the game in the second half. I found almost that the first half was... Um, it. It started a little bit of that that quality of, of the teams trying to search each other out and, and have they got a each team got a couple of decent chances early that were pretty easily saved by the goalkeeper but nobody put on a, a huge amount of pressure and um, and I didn't realize until I looked at the stats just how much of the possession Toronto had in this game. Uh, in the in the half and, and in this game because it always it really seemed nothing really seemed to build particularly a lot and I don't necess, like I don't necessarily think that even though there were like five minute intervals where TFC had like eighty four percent possession in the first half yeah it didn't always seem like that built together in pressure and that's something that I noticed in the second half that that even when they were in possession. They weren't necessarily going forward with force. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that... I don't know if that was necessarily part of the game plan. That was a question I wanted to ask you, is that um, we talked last week about possible tactics that the team would use, and Brian Schmetzer uh, obviously has kind of nailed the playoffs tactically, as did Greg Vanny. And from my perspective, you could read this a couple of ways, but my thinking is that you know, you're at home, you've got this massive stadium behind you, of course you want to come out guns blazing and not, um, uh, like, not take advantage of the opportunity to do it in front of your home fans, but 
you know, Toronto has looked to be a little leggy. They their last game was a, a knock knockdown drag them out fight against Atlanta United with a lot of travel. So do you kind of just let them run for 45 minutes, assuming they're going to come at you guns blazing, assuming that as long as defensively you get your things right and try to take your chances on the counters, that in the second half you can really punish them. I don't know that that's necessarily what Schmetzer's goal was, but if you if you frame the game under that way, I'd say that tactically that would have worked and and did. But I was surprised at how much possession Toronto had and really did look the better side for much of the first half. Um, they had 65% overall. And especially in midfield. like, and Maybe it's not terribly surprising given the presence of uh, Michael Bradley, but just the amount of plays that they were breaking up in the midfield was, was pretty astounding. Seattle did not have much going through the middle. Well, I think that that has a lot... That... Um essentially comes down to the counterattacking strategy. What's interesting to me is that, that in the first half, there's these areas where Seattle has um, intervals of possession in five minutes. They don't have any in the second half, and that's where they score all their goals. Um, and, and, and if you look at the mid, like the midfield is where you want to hold people because that's where you can catch a, a lucky bounce or you can, you can you know, catch somebody at the, at the halfway line. Um, and, and try to sort of move them. I say this despite the fact that one of these goals was scored off of a, of a transit of a defensive third transition, but like, but my general thought, you mean is the first goal focusing on the midfield, the Kevin, I was actually thinking of the third goal in that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But, yeah, but, yeah. Leardam, but, Leer, but like, but essentially I feel like if you're focusing on the midfield, then you're only one sort of zone away when you're trying to do, you know, you could do stuff on the break, but something like that first goal where Kelvin, where uh, they they play down the right, they play down the left hand side. Leardom is sending the ball in, but it doesn't really. It's not particularly going anywhere, and it's certainly not going on target. And then Justin Morrow just happens to catch it on his leg in the worst possible way yeah. to send it into the net. Well. One of the things that was, uh, I forget which commentator said it last week, but it was sort of said again, and I, it sort of drove it home for me, is that Toronto is not a particularly quick side this year. And so if you're no. Seattle, it does make sense to kind of, um, you know, clog up the middle, but not necessarily ha- trying to have all your play go through that, knowing that they've got a ton of speed down the wings. And that seemed to work quite effectively for Seattle in the first half when they did have chances going forward. It was all down that right-hand side for them. Um, and that's where Toronto that seemed sense. to, was one of the few weak points they had is covering, covering that flank. Um, and I think from Toronto's side, they were happy to not have Lodero have a lot of time on the ball in the middle and let Seattle fling some crosses into the box, assuming that they're, um, their center backs would be able to deal with it, which I think for the most part did outside of the defensive error that causes the own goal that, I mean, that didn't happen until in the second half. So I thought for the first half, Toronto defensively was set up very well. Um, I don't know if we want to jump to it now or kind of talk about the, the goals and how the game unfolded, but I was curious to know what you thought about Toronto's approach to this game. Well, I think that the the thing that I'm the most interested in 
Um, the selections are all, of course, something that are very interesting. Like, like everybody, all week, everybody would talk about, everybody's talking about Josie. And I both, obviously throughout the playoffs, I thought that Josie Altidore is such an important player for them to have available. However, um, that only goes as far as, um, that only goes, like, like once the, they, they got a couple rounds in without using it. Yeah. It's like, I wasn't really thinking at the, after the Atlanta game, if they don't get out the door back, they can't win because they just beat an opponent that in some senses you could consider it might be superior to Atlanta, to Seattle. Um, without without using him so so one of the things that i'm interested in when it comes to the approach is the response from toronto when sarka starts to happen yeah because this goal um like you're you're absolutely right that throughout the first half that they've got a pretty they're executing their game plan pretty well um they are controlling the ball pretty well they are getting chances they're not taking the chances but they're they're doing okay and this 57th minute goal is a freak accident in, in some senses. However, I still think they still have a lot of, they still have control of the ball after that, but the best chances are not them. Like th- this is the thing that I'm talking about, about the, the, their, the force in possession. Yeah. Um, in, in the moment where I tried to really like track it actually came, comes after the second goal. Um, but, but, I think that Toronto exhibited a failure until the very, very late stages of the game, like after the 90th minute, to hurry up and display a sense of urgency. Yeah, yeah. I thought that overall the possession was good, and certainly the midfield passing, you know, these were quick, decisive passes, whether they were short or long. I was really impressed with, and have been really impressed with, Toronto's um, midfield passing overall throughout the playoffs. Um, and, and that's something that we just haven't seen a ton of this year in MLS outside of LAFC, um, teams stringing together these triangular passes, um, and, and these really deep cutting balls through the midfield. However, the final third, there's virtually nothing on there. And I think it's, it's so interesting when you compare this game or maybe better wording is contrast to this game to the Atlanta United game where Toronto had very few chances, but those two chances get buried in the back of the net. Um, Outside of Altidore's goal, I can't really think of a time where Fry was really tested all that much. I think there might have been a a Pozuelo curler that came in that he was able to get down and get a, a firm paw to to keep it out. But Toronto just wasn't clinical, even in their their uh, final approach in the box. I thought they were pretty wasteful, and it and just seemed a little bit frantic by the time they got down there. There were two there were two nice chances from Rosario in the first half, but the one thing that I wanted to it's like I definitely agree with you about feeling that franticness and about not being able to to break into the final third. They they were like. The triangles are good, and they were trying to pull. They were trying to pull these wonderful triangles, these beautiful passing plays together in the second half of the game. But the thing is, is that you have to have some sort of sense of an end product. And the uh, they're ba- they're doing back passes thirty yards, fifty yards out of goal 
when they're on the attack and they're trying to set up like like in in, in technically they're on the attack and they're set up in the final third there are people forward in the box they have control of the ball but the midfielders are pinging it around and the moment that they try to move forward they are easily stripped of the ball yeah i, like I agree no they they didn't have any particular way of, of of breaking through those channels absolutely the yeah the end product there is is important is that i overall in mls i feel like that's been a theme this season is that you feel like when the ball does get into that final third and near the box that there's not really a vision of like who is it going to then there's just a cross in or sort of a hopeful pass mm. forward deep into the box, assuming there's going to be somebody there. But there's not necessarily the vision from the the winger to look up and see, okay, who's in the box, um, or who's at the top of the box, who, who I could maybe cut it back to, that they would get up there, and they're basically almost at the goal line, and then, as you say, do this cutback back pass 30 yards out again to somebody that's not really in a position to even pass to the next open player... So it's it's not even a case of their shots on goal and and them not taking their chances. It's they'd run and get up there and then sort of just look around and there'd just be nothing on. And so and then the yeah. Seattle would get a, a lunging challenge in and it would just go back the other way. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, the I was disappointed at first to see, you know, okay, so they've scored, so now this is the, the time when Toronto is forced to, supposed to respond. And then Victor Rodriguez scores his second goal, which is, I believe, the, the, the play is coming in through the left-hand side. Um, the ball is played and sort of bounces off um, a defender's boot or defender's leg, and uh, Rodriguez is able to walk onto the ball, essentially, in the box. Yeah. Um, and... and score from the top of the box. The and so now you're down two nothing and you're it's the seventy sixth minute and there's such a mammoth task in front of you and they're still kicking it around in possession. Yeah. They're still not going forward and they still don't like like even though they have all that possession, I can't say from seventy six to ninety if they had anything on. No. No, and, it, and that's sort of at the point where Seattle takes over, right? Is they, yes. all of a sudden their possession looks a lot more threatening. All of a sudden their chances start coming. I, it should also be noted that even through the first half, Seattle had opportunities. And maybe there wasn't a lot to them. I think Jordan Morris, Morris had an early chance. I think there was another one from a Seattle player. It might have been Roldan that went quite a bit over the bar, but was at least a shot kind of near the net. Um, a couple into the side netting, like Seattle did have a couple of chances. And I think that's judging from, I think Kevin Leardham's post game where when asked about what Brian Schmetzer said at halftime was sort of like, we always score goals. So, you know, let's calm things down a little bit, focus. And uh, you know, that's, that's correct is they did have their, a couple of chances in the first half. And Seattle has been, I think, much more patient in terms of scoring goals over, well, I don't know, but I mean, how many late goals has Toronto scored this season, right? Like, and I guess then they do get one back. I got to put you, I got to, I got to call that back because there was this, uh, I'm trying to remember who it was, but somebody has been passing around the stats that they've won like all of their games past the 75th minute. Right, 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 right. 
all their all their playoff games. So, don't you just love being able to count on goals like that, though? Especially in a fixture like this, where goals have been uh, have been uh, hard to come by in the past. Everybody is talking about it because people are debating whether or not this this Leardom goal is an own goal or not. The fact that we're three games, we're in our third Seattle-Toronto MLS Cup, and Seattle still have potentially not scored a goal that's credited to a Seattle player um, in in actual time. Uh, Rodriguez, of course, was set to bed. One thing I wanted to ask you about is the selections. Because, yeah. Because I think apart a, a for... A big part of, of TFC's response that I found disappointing here is, well, not even the response. It was the right response of the players they put on. But if you look at it, 62 minutes, Nick DeLeon comes on. Uh, 68, Josie Altador comes on. And immediately following the goal on 76, Richie Larea comes on for Jonathan Osorio. I feel, given how important these players have been, and maybe this is a narrative, and maybe, maybe I'm, I'm speaking with, like, you know, from an emotional perspective or from a narratively aware perspective. But how, after what has happened in these games, you don't start DeLay on and Larea? I understand not starting Josie. I understand. Yeah. I, I get that. But Josie comes in for Benazé. Yeah. And Larea comes in for Osorio. Yeah. And these, those six play like, uh, yeah, those, those play all of those players have been, including, uh, are, are just some of the, the key players that have been able to make those most important moments happen. And it was it's great to see DeLeon had an immediate impact. Yeah. I think Larea had less of, less of an impact, but, I mean, Toronto on the whole didn't really have a lot going on, so you can't necessarily blame that on him. Um, but, but why, what do you think of the choices TFC made all of its substitutions in a row, and and what do you think of of the players they choose to start chose to start in the first place, and who they chose to bring on, and and how that affected the game? Um, For whom? Yeah, I mean, the in terms of choices, my big sort of question mark is why if you have we saw Omar Gonzalez come back into the the starting lineup here, which is great to see. I think that makes sense. I think he's definitely Toronto's best center back at the moment. I have questions about playing starting Mavinga over Simon. I mean, Simon's not had a great season with Toronto, but he's had good moments. I think it might just be a case of who's more comfortable um, on their right foot. And maybe that was the choice being made, but I would rather have two right. right-footed center backs than have Chris Mavinga as a center back in my lineup. Sorry, Mavinga, but <laughs> I mean, he's he's had some good moments. I'd say through the playoffs, Mavinga's actually not been all that bad, but he's had a very shaky season. Um, and we saw him pull up with, you know, struggling with a bit of injury for a good 20 minutes in this game. So... I, I sort of question, in a game like this where you're playing away, do you, why do you not pick the experience of Laurence Simon over M- Chris Mavinga to start? That being said, did it really matter all that much? I mean, you could say it's Mavinga's fault on the final goal, but, I mean, Rui Diaz has beaten larger, stronger, better centre-backs in the same kind of play, so I don't really think that one is necessarily Mavinga's fault. Fault. Like, I can see a lot of center backs getting beaten on that same play. 
Um, yeah. But to your question about the substitutes, uh, I mean, let's assume Vanny had made his decisions based on some fitness questions. I think the Josie choice makes a lot of sense. I mean, Altador hasn't played in a month, so he's not going to... Agreed on Josie. I have no yeah. I have no problem with Josie not starting. Yeah, but Larea um, and Delion. Delion is maybe a, a fitness thing because I believe he went the full 90 in the last match. But... Yeah, Larea for his Larea is one of their f- few fast players, um, and sure he's he's much younger, doesn't have the same level of experience. But I think what Toronto lacked through um, the beginning of the second half and and parts of the the first is that speed going forward and and that little bit of kind of a hate to say X factor, but like just something a little bit unpredictable that we know Larea brings. And we certainly, we we have much proof that Deleon brings as well. So, you know, starting Osorio, I don't think that that's a bad call, but I I think you're right to be, to ask those questions. And I, and I wonder if if maybe Vanny is asking the same questions after the game. I, I only heard Marky Delgado's name once during that game. And it was the commentators asking, why is Larea coming out for Osorio and not Delgado? Yeah, yeah. Because... Delgado did not. <laughs> I think Delgado might have had like a half chance at one point, but uh, overall, I think that was a pretty um, not a great game for him. Um, yeah. Um, one of the sto- it feels like you focus on. I just wanted to say that it feels like you focus on. It feels like perhaps, and and this is Altador aside, because we know from experience that bringing in Altador cold can work and can create some some huge goals. And he scored. Yeah, there's and no, it did. Like no, in there's no against. bringing him in worked, just not it. It didn't work, and it would work have worked a lot better if they were able to if Toronto had actually scored some more goals and then brought him in. It felt like there was. It felt like there was a lack of adherence to the players that quote-unquote brought them to the dance. Yeah. And also the players who were playing well in that game got sold, got sent, got uh, substituted off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Vanny, I mean, he's made some some good calls, definitely some some head scratchers over the course of the season, but, I mean, he's won an MLS Cup. He's gotten his team to the finals three times, so... Uh, I don't want to put too much emphasis on the lineups because I think he also deserves enough credit to say, like, I mean, he picked the players he thought would win the game and they didn't do the job, but is that really what let Toronto down? Like, would it have made that much of a difference? I would argue that having um, certainly Larea on the pitch earlier maybe could have made a difference. Um but ultimately, I, I just feel like Seattle was up for this one, and, and we're always at some point going to take over this game and outplay Toronto, and have proved to be far more devastating in their finishes throughout the season than Toronto has been. Even though Toronto has scored tons of goals and won all of their playoff games po- past the 75-minute mark, um, Seattle's also consistently shown that they can really have not a lot of the ball and play many different styles of soccer and then hit you for three in quick succession, which they do. I, I, 
I only bring up the subs that way because I kind of not not to to you know get too much into like you know formations, but to say that I think that Toronto's response was poor to yeah. to, to going down. Yeah. The um, you see the the third goal as mentioned comes from uh, Gustav Svensson deep standing on his own uh, defensive penalty D sends a long ball that bounces out. And I do think that Mavinga is kind of walking back thinking that he's going to be like, like, he, I don't know if he sees Rudy Jazz behind him or not, but like, I think he thinks he's going to be pretty easy to get, be the person to get on this ball. Um, but, but Rudy Diaz beats him. He's one-on-one with Westberg. Immediately. He's just like, what to Westberg and Westberg is just cussing him out. Um, and, and then you get this final, the headed goal from Pozuelo to Altador to make it 3-1 after, like, on the 93rd minute. And then they have a wonderful attacking possession of play, you know, like, like, like an attacking possession of play. And it's just like, where was this for the last half hour when it could have been helpful? But I don't want to, I, I want to, I want to come up with, with the reason why Toronto lost the game, but also it's important to talk about how great Seattle were in doing it. What impressed you about them? Yes, great question, and I and I think that is a good like sort of shift in the in the focus here. Is that um, what impressed me about Seattle is what has impressed me about Seattle for the the second part of their season and certainly their playoff run is that. Seattle wins games like Seattle can win games multiple different ways. And we talked about this last week and that's I think why we kind of ended up picking them as our likely winner is less the home advantage and the fact that they have multiple different ways of winning games and that as a team as a more complete team um see like Seattle just looks like they've got at least 15 players that know each other pretty well and know what each other are going to do. Toronto has a really good core and has a good team as well, and it has depth, but I feel like Toronto can field, um, like, oh, my Instagram feed is paused. Well, at least I'm recording still. I can still hear you. Um, there we go. Um, there you are. Toronto, I feel like, can field eight now good I can players. Now I but I can't hear you. And um, Seattle can field a, a, a really strong starting 11. What are your thoughts? I can see you. I just can't hear you. The magic of live... It's funny because I, I have no video, Here but you. yes, audio, and now I have oh, yes, no. video, but no audio. That's really bizarre. Let's see here. I'm still connected. Nothing. Damn. Well... Womp womp. Um, my video is still working. 
That almost worked. Doo -doo -doo. Sorry, folks who are watching, if you can hear me. I think we gotta, we, this might be as far, as far as the train goes in terms of the live part. Here, I'm gonna try to... Can you hear me now? Okay, I've restarted the live video. Let's see if I can get Batesy back. Bates, Bates, Bates. Do 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 do. Let's see here. Will it work? Will it work? Will it? Will it work? Hello. Woo! I still can't hear you. Oh, I can hear you. I can hear you. But you can't see me. I can see you. Oh. Can you see me? Not showing up on my end. I can see you. All right. So the point you were gonna make. Um. Toronto War Team that. Oh, so I think. What are you? What What impresses you about What impresses you about Seattle? What impresses me about Seattle is that they're a more complete team, um, and that they field. They can field 15 strong players who know each other well and can play really well together, seem to have a good understanding. Uh, Toronto definitely has depth, but I feel like at any given point they've got maybe eight players um, that can like really play well together. Um, I think it, one of the commentators on the stream I was watching made the point too of like, is this uh, incentive for Toronto to maybe spread out the money they spent a little bit? They spend an awful lot of money on their forward players this season. Um, the big question mark now, of course, is uh, Michael Bradley's $6.5 million clause in his contract, if they won MLS Cup to keep him at Toronto, has not been triggered. So does Michael Bradley stay or does he go? My guess is he goes. That free up frees up some cap space. But you need to spend big to replace the impact of a player like Michael Bradley. Um, mm -hmm. But is is def you know again defensively is that what Toronto really needs? I would say the thing they really need is um, they have the need for speed. Some pacey some pacey <laughs> guys down the wing is probably what Toronto needs. Um, or, you know, and and similarly maybe looking for some quality left backs and right backs that give you some more defensive prowess uh but some some more attacking options as well i wasn't i know i wasn't the biggest fan of Auro in this game seeing him seeing him there seems to be like a, a misplacement yeah um yeah. but so so with seattle you kind of think that that they banded together a little bit more and, and the players were able to function more cohesively I, I think so yeah i think as a team there's a fluidity of, to their play um, even when they've been wide open at times, like the Dallas game, that they still they still just seem to have a better sense of where they need to be on the pitch and where each other are going to be on the pitch. Um, so it's certainly not without yeah. errors, but I feel like that's been our kind of running narrative for a while now, is that Seattle at least plays really well as a team. And 
obviously when you have the um, abilities of somebody like Rui Diaz, um, Victor Rodriguez has been not a stellar signing, but he's gotten goals where it counts. I mean, he got he essentially gets the game winner in this one. So yeah. that seems like money well spent. Um, but also just like the... Um, I think Schmetzer and a couple of other people mentioned it. It's just the mentality of the Seattle side is very, very strong. That even when they've had some horrible losses, even when they've gone down, um, there's not been many games where Seattle's really looked just completely out of it. Like, there's been points where you're like, wow, it's amazing that they haven't won many games for a stretch, um, and what's going wrong here, but there doesn't seem to be the same like team collapse or lack of cohesion that some teams have had. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I feel like the, the interesting thing, you know, maybe compared to how Toronto might've been thought of going into this, is it you were talking about a, a, a variety of styles earlier. And it's like, without having to do sort of like a Paul Riley and NWSL esque say thing where you say oh i think we're the underdogs even though we're playing at home and, and everything right without really having to to make that case on the stump, the stump speech um seattle had that counter-attacking underdog mentality set up against a team like against a team that really wasn't expecting it in a way so it's like you can play that way against atlanta yeah and then Atlanta are just going to continue to press and press and press and press and press and press and press until you break. But if you play that way and and give somebody else the space and let that be, you know, the 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 failing that isn't expecting to have that space, they're like, what do I do with this? I got so much space. Yeah, you're... I don't have a clear strategy to break you down, so I'm just gonna like well, hang out. And that's maybe a, um, like a, a more um, observant addition to kind of what I was saying at the beginning of the show is how um, Seattle might have tactically given Toronto a little bit of extra room in order to free up their wings to go. We know yeah, we can hit yeah. them on the counter because we know we've got fast forwards and fast um, wingers, so that's what we'll capitalize on and and certainly it, it appeared that way i mean i don't think you could say seattle was really giving toronto a lot in this case because there was an awful lot of midfield battles where it would kind of just be the ball would ping pong back and forth around the center field and toronto would break up the play move forward 10 or 15 yards and then seattle would break up the play and move up 10 or 15 yards like there was a good gritty 30 minutes there where there wasn't too much on and it wasn't the most exciting soccer, but um, they were sort of feeling each other out. But, uh, I mean, yeah, it's it's hard to say. I don't know that Seattle necessarily let them have space, but um, in terms of, as you said, taking advantage of that countering, um, it whether it was purposeful or not, I don't think Toronto expected Seattle to be playing on the back foot for the first 45 minutes. Um, that being said, I don't know. Seattle might not have expected that either. Who impressed you the most? What was your, who would be your player of the game? That's a very good question. Um, 
I mean, okay, the goalkeeper in me wants to say Stefan Fry, but I think I'm thinking of just his performance in the playoffs. He didn't, he didn't really have too much to do here. He made a couple of good saves. Um, but I, I, he just provides so much confidence out of the back. Um, it's a really... That's a great question. I, I think... I'm going to say Gustav Svensson because it's a name that oh. you didn't hear a lot, but he played a very good game, had the impact where he needed to have it. And in terms of, if if I had to say a Toronto player, I'd say Michael Bradley. I thought Michael Bradley had an excellent game. He's had excellent playoffs. I think he did everything more or less correctly that he needed to do. Um, and Svensson had to be equal to the task, and I thought he was. And to me... The sign of a good finals is where you have two great center midfielders battling it out um, and going in for lots of challenges, but also being smart with the ball distribution. So it might seem like a, a weird choice. I mean, certainly Kevin Leardham as well, I thought, had a, a had a just incredible match for a guy that you no, don't necessarily anticipate as being an impact player. I thought Leardham um, really like out-earned his paycheck in this one. <laughs> who, who would who would you pick? Uh, that's a great question. I don't feel confident in any of my answers, really. Well, I thought that the Svensson Svensson for for most impress most impressing is a is a good one, um, and I feel like that you also have to uh, feel good about Victor Rodriguez coming in as a substitute and then uh, scoring, mm-hmm. um, given that he's a defender. <laughs> well, it's probably not how you plan to probably not how you plan to spend your day. Maybe not. Um, and it's a great goal as well. Like just talking about working in tight spaces. Um, that was uh, a definitely an impact. I mean, that's a great point. So we talk about the wingers, but it, we're not talking when we talk about the wingers coming forward. It's like it's not even like the like midfield wingers. It's wing backs. Yeah. Yeah. Um. um Another player that really impressed me, um, oh, as soon as I started talking, I forgot his, <laughs> his name. Oh, too much soccer's happening. Morris? Jordan Morris, I actually, a good first half. Um, mm. I think Morris, I mean, any player that scores a hat trick in the playoffs, I think you need to be a little bit easy on. To the fact that he didn't <laughs> score in the next two games, I don't think really takes any of the sheen off of him. Um, also, given his age, I think he's twenty five or twenty six. Um, so, um, I, I mean, I think, I mean, he's just got so much upper body mass, and he's he's strong, but. I still think there's some decision-making there that could be ironed out to really make him um, just a, a killer striker, but you get a hat-trick out of him in the playoffs, so he, he is a killer striker. Um, it's maybe splitting hairs. Um, the I think that my feeling, and, and it's definitely um, influenced by the fact that I'm in Canada and that I was in Toronto for the first two games, I feel that that because of the the lack of success Toronto had enjoyed before they entered the 2016 MLS Cup final, 
made them the, the clear underdogs. And in playing at home, they were also were kind of felt like the protagonists of that game. And that when Seattle won that, in the way that they won that in 2016, was an antagonist an antagonist move. It was the it was this the twist ending, the twist ending of a of 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 a sly adversary. Um, and when they came back the next year to win in 2017, Toronto, of course, firmly the protagonist after a, a, a record breaking season to 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 get there. And I feel like this was finally Seattle's chance to be the hero playing at home in front of their own fans. Oddly enough, despite the fact that they only had 35% of possession playing positively, scoring lots of goals, like, like this was, this was Seattle's chance to not only win, but to win in a dominant fashion. Well, and be, and be sort of like the center of attention. Yeah, absolutely. And given the attention of, on LAFC and Atlanta United this season, I think I don't know that that really affected Brian Schmetzer or Seattle all that much. I mean, Schmetzer certainly has made comments about it or alluded to it a little bit. But for me, um, if you were, if you're, especially if you're talking expansion sides, but if you're talking MLS 2.0, if that is indeed a thing. Um, or 3.0, whatever version software update we're in of MLS right now, Seattle's the best team in the league. Because, um, first of all, by the sheer results, um, but also the way in which they've been able to do it under multiple different circumstances um, with a core group of players, but they've, they've certainly... Again, remembering that like the team that won their last MLS Cup was pretty different. Like they're missing a lot of star power that won them their first one, um, but they were able to make mm. smart signings. And you know, a player like Rui Diaz coming in has an opportunity to write himself into that history of this team. And that Seattle has yeah. really yeah. written the book on how to be a successful suspension suspension successful expansion side in MLS. Of course, Atlanta deserves their credit and so does LAFC, but um, I feel like this is sort of like the forgot about Dre thing where Seattle is like, we were here first. We're the real expansion. <laughs> and I don't know how much all of that, years, that narrative matters. Many years on past the, ex- many years on past the expansion because they were at like, what, 2010? So they've been around for a while, but what I see, I, your your point is taken about sort of the establishing and laying down the groundwork. And they've never been a bad team since they've come into the league. I mean, they've they've had years where they've struggled, yes, but they've they had a vision, they've stuck to that vision, and it's been very successful. And I think that you know MLS has all kinds of storylines and narratives that they run with sometimes, and and then we and everybody who comments on it. It's it's easy to get caught up in the 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 new and the shiny and the exciting, but it's really easy to ignore things that are happening around the league. I mean, the whole purpose of us even doing this show was to learn more about these other teams where we're looking at New England and Philadelphia going like nobody talks about these teams or like seems to watch them. And then when they come and play the Whitecaps, everybody's like, How did we lose to New England? And we're going 
because they're a really good organized <laughs> side. Uh, just nobody pays attention to them. Talking from a league perspective, um, how do you think that these playoffs have gone? How do you uh, like the format? Um, what would you do differently, and uh, and what would you keep? I think the new playoff format of the single elimination is great. Um, I think that that seems to be the consensus, at least in internet land. Um, it's made for some very exciting games. Um, I love this new format of uh, Toronto and Seattle have to be the final two teams in the MLS final, regardless of results. <laughs> Next year, uh, Seattle and Toronto, I expect the same again. Um, everything I give top marks to, the, the thing that's missing here for maybe the league is a big TV deal to really hype up this final. When you look at the scenes in Seattle and Inside Century Link for, for that not to be on any of the major sports networks in the States, I, I think is a, a missed opportunity. Um, the only other thing too is that... What, where did it, where did it air? It was on, uh... Just what was it on? Was it Fox, maybe? But it wasn't on ESPN, I don't think. It was on ABC. It was on ABC. ABC, yeah. Which is the ESPN. Which is, so it was on network TV, but... Um, but, like, I think that a lot of people mentioned that, that they didn't really feel it was promoted that well. Yeah. Especially, like, you know, you know, coming in. Especially with, like, a week to do it. Well, and doing it on a and, Sunday, and I, which is... Wonder, you've got You've got a foot, uh, NFL Sunday to compete with as well. Um, not that you're really like stealing viewers from that, but I, and I don't, I truly don't know what the answer is. I don't know what solves this or if there is necessarily a thing to solve. The only other thing that I just, I feel like I have to say is time and time again in MLS that it is a little bit of a pity still that, um, there's just not a lot of emphasis on defensive players and, it would have. I felt like defensively, this game was pretty good and about as good as we're going to see in an MLS Cup final. But it really did stand out mm. in the playoffs that it's really about big money forwards who who can get the job done and score spectacular goals. It's great entertainment. I would like to see that. I'm willing to sacrifice a couple of spectacular goals in playoff situations to see a little bit more patient play um, and some stronger defense in MLS. And I think the teams that are going to be successful moving forward probably are going to be doing a little bit more of that as well. But one of the teams that's done it the best in terms of spreading their money around is Seattle. So, you know, there's, there's team, teams have already noticed, and I, and I think you could argue that Toronto's done that as well. Toronto maybe needs to strike a bit more of a balance, but making it to the MLS Cup final for three, t three times in four years, they seem to have struck some kind of balance. Mm -hmm. We're adding two new teams by the end of next year. And uh, I, we had talked about this article that I wanted to discuss, which is the MLS TV rating slump. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Question that came out on on, on the twenty third on World Soccer Talk, um, by Chris Harris, uh, that had suggested that 
um, the opening week of the playoffs, despite being super exciting games, dropped 54% from last year's opening round. Um, and in a 19% overall drop during uh, for the season. Um, and you go through his analysis and a lot of the, the one, a lot of the things seem like to a certain extent, kind of like traditional gripes, like, Oh, there's no pro rel. Well, I don't know if no, the lack of pro rel is affecting us ratings. If, if viewers are staying away yeah. because of the lack of drama on the, the, the back end. Um, but the one thing that, that concerned, The one thing that concerned the one thing that concerned viewers that, that concerned them a little bit is expansion, um, both from the perspective of um, pulling things down in the player pool or like sort of pulling the the average level of, of quality down because of the player pool, um, and diluting the product. But also, it kind of worries me a little bit from the perspective of creating these brands that people know and can like interface with. And like, as this is the thing about Seattle and Toronto winning, is that as much as MLS, MLS 3.0, or has been like, you know, Atlanta, LFC, two wonderful teams that are coming in. It's like they have the shiny new toy effect of just burning a new, like you know, bringing somebody in, and 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 we've got a shiny new franchise that you can uh, pay attention to, and then even like teams that are a couple of years old or like forgotten about. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a great point is, is I feel like MLS was lucky that they had uh, an interesting storyline to go with again this year. Um, and, and their sort of their trilogy packaging of this. Um, but let's be real. I mean, let's, there's any number of combina like any combination of teams you could pick that you think like how many, people are really going to watch a let's say it's white caps in new england like how many mm. how many viewers out of market viewers are going to be watching that final um or let, chicago minnesota like I, I, I there's not as much draw perhaps around those teams so i think that yeah i, I share that worry a little bit too and I don't necessarily know what the fix is. Um, I think obviously in terms of salary caps, that's something that maybe needs to be looked at. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, changing the rules to allow teams a little bit more flexibility to bring in more quality. But yeah, when you do end up with um, just so many teams, I mean, you and I struggle with that sometimes because it's just... When you get everybody playing on the same weekend, you're just like, God, there's just so much to think about that it almost sort of doesn't matter until the, the final couple of weeks of the season because there's so much movement in the table just because there's so many games. Well, yeah, if you look at a, you look at a team like Orlando that came in with that, that, that high level of expectation and now the bloom is basically completely off, um, I just think about it for next year, thinking we are going to have another expansion draft. Yeah. For two, for two, another two team expansion draft, and it's like I don't know that I've had the time to get used to SC Cincinnati, or like you know I guess we're now a little bit more used to LAFC, 
that's the good news. The playoff good news is that LAFC LA Galaxy did break the um, playoffs rating record. Uh, yes, I think. I don't know if that counts MLS Cup or not, but it. Um, but yes, it, it did set some records. So like those two established brands, whether or not one of them one of them is a long time brand, one of them is 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 you know what you're getting out of that. Like the top, like those are two good top teams, but it's like we don't have time to meet anyone. We don't have time to get to know a team before it's like, all right, now we're going to have another two teams in. We're going to have five new teams in in the next three years. It's like, it's, I, I wonder, and I know that they're in their expansion period, and then maybe there's going to be an era where they don't expand at all for another 10 years, and then people are going to miss this time period. But it feels, it does feel a little, it does have a, a little bit of a strange feeling to me. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, I wonder too about you know why they they they've done a lot of uh, surveys about like what their um, interaction with Liga MX will look like and um, what conference play will look like, like if if we see more of a, like a, a clear division between the conferences for most of the regular season. Um, Mm-hmm. To, to sort of independently really develop those two markets. Um, there's a lot of different things they could do to, to address this. But I, 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 yeah, I think I have the same question in terms of, okay, so once you finally get your 30 teams, then what? Like what becomes the shiny new thing and, and how do you continue to grow the league? And to your other point is how do you keep people interested in the Columbus crews, in the... Chicago Fires in the the, yeah. the quote unquote legacy teams of MLS the uh, like um, Colorado Rapids even um, that are maybe smaller markets but might put together good teams and then end up in the finals. I mean, if it's San Jose, um, Colorado in the final, well, I guess that couldn't happen because it's got to be East versus West, but like. Again, teams that don't have huge followings, what happens if they're in the final? Like, how do you market that to fans and how are you developing people to be fans of the league? I mean, for you and I, it's easy because we have to be fans of the league because we have to know what's going on because we report about the report. (laughs) It's maybe too strong of a word. We talk about what's going on in the rest of the league. The... Those teams, like you know, it's, it's talking almost about them as being these these charity cases. But it's like, like Columbus and maybe not as Columbus, but like a New England, a Chicago, a DC, and DC kind of was this year. Should be your top markets, and and they should they should be like like things that the league is is trying to really rely on and trying to grow in, and the they have focused on whatever the newest acquisition is instead and a slightly more balanced approach would be good um on the field or the other the other big off the field note is that the cba expires on the 31st so that'll be on on january 31st yeah yeah that's sort of the next uh storyline that we've kind of not dropped but just haven't really picked up again is um yeah the collective bargaining agreement and um, there was a, a sort of towards the end of the season, a big advertising campaign that the players union did um, 
what things are going to look like there. And and maybe the question we'll be asking in a couple of weeks is, is there going to be an MLS season? And when will it start next year? That'll be interesting. I 31st is pretty close to the start of when you would think the season would be to, to sure. cut it. But hopefully they... Hopefully it's not too uh, stressful, but we could see some big changes on on items like charter flights or or even you know getting into the workings of TAM itself. Yeah. On the field, where do you go from here if you're Toronto? Um, again, I don't think a lot of wholesale changes. To be honest, um, I think it's hard to envision many ways in which Toronto could have won this particular game against this particular opponent. And given what they did to Atlanta United, it's hard to say that you really need to change up a lot. Uh, Toronto's DP signings have worked out for the most part. Um, Defensively, they've obviously, they've got work that they need to do there. Um, I really hope that Westberg is able to keep the starting goalkeeper spot. Toronto has had a litany of great goalkeepers that they just seem to let go and not want to resign or whatever. And I think that they they need to kind of have somebody a little bit more, like let somebody be consistent there. I think Westberg has earned that starting spot and should keep it. <laughs> I'd like to see him stay with the team for at least a couple of years. Um, the question for me with Toronto will really be, I don't expect Michael Bradley will stay. And then how do you replace that kind of presence? And that's going to be the big, big question for them. And do you look at maybe Rodriguez as maybe a player that you can afford to do without and spend some of that cash um, in midfield? However, if Michael Bradley moves on, I mean, that's his salary is already high, so they've got the the cap space to do something there. Um, I I think uh, another centre-back addition with a bit more experience. Um, And then, as we talked about earlier, some speed. They're a great team. They can also win games many different ways, but just they don't have a lot of speed going forward. And this was another example of a game where they probably could have used that, right? If they could have had their own counter-attacking moments that could have really opened up some doors oh. for them. Um, yeah. What, what do you think? When you say Rodriguez, you mean, you mean, you, you still mean, uh, do you mean Omar Gonzalez? No, I mean, yeah, Victor Rodriguez. Oh, so, so oh. he's, he's Seattle. Fuck. Yes. <laughs> just a, just hi, a I'm Nick and I do um, a podcast about soccer and I don't know who's on what team. <laughs> But it's true. It's true. I think that a couple more, more the what the res, the response will be with Bradley is huge, and also like that is a character change, right? Whoever that comes in, it's like if you think about there have been years for Seattle recently where Lodero has been big, and years where he hasn't had the most impact, but he still influences the character of the oh, team yeah. by his presence. Yeah. And I feel that I feel that. Um, Bradley being the divisive figure that he is, could sometimes you could say, oh, he was trash, oh, he was good, or whatever. But, but regardless of whether or not you are pro or anti-Bradley, he is going to what you do about that is going to change the look, the the makeup of the team, and change the yeah. 
like like how it plays and and what stories that we tell about it. And I also think that it's it's worth separating the two Michael Bradleys. There's the U.S. Men's National Team Michael Bradley and the Toronto FC Michael Bradley. If we're just looking at his contributions to Toronto, he's been outstanding. Um, has he been their best center back? No. Um, how many center midfielders who can go box to box, be a holding midfielder, be an influential player going forward, can also play a string of games at center back and command a back line um, with, I mean, passably command a, a back line? Not too many. So. He's a, a Swiss Army knife of a player, and that's pretty rare domestically in MLS. So if Toronto's not able to keep him, that's a major piece they have to fill. And I imagine that that will affect a lot of other choices they have to make because they're not likely to find a Michael Bradley-type versatile player to replace him. So they might find a more traditional holding midfielder that might do that job better than Michael Bradley did, but they don't then have the same versatility as when they have Michael Bradley on the pitch. Where do you go from here if you're Seattle? Um, probably MLS Cup Final 2020. That's where you go. <laughs> Against Toronto again? Against anybody. Um, they might consider uh, whether they keep Victor Rodriguez, Rodriguez, who's their player, not Toronto's. Um, mm -hmm. Seattle's done everything right, right? Like, um, as you mentioned, Ladero, even when he's not had a major impact overall, what you look at in terms of his contributions to the team is massive. Um, I think that Seattle's thing will be continuing to bring young players through their system. That's the only piece that's missing. But Jordan Morris, um, and I'm forgetting the kid's name, but they have a younger player that they signed from their academy, um, who I don't think we've seen too, too much of in the postseason, but I think he's still on the team. Um, I'd, I'd like to see some of that at Seattle. Is They've obviously, they know how to spend money. They know how to bring in big signings. Um, can they develop players in the same way? I know the answer is yes. I just, I think that will be the next thing for Seattle is just how can they continue to build on this? And I mean, and also if they change virtually nothing, they'll probably end up in the final again. They've got some people on long-term deals. Victor, uh, Christian Roldan is on a five-year contract that was signed in December. Jordan Morris signed a five-year deal last year. I'm looking for Ladero and seeing what his contact set, contract status is. Um, but as weird as it is, because we were talking about how they've, they've had some Oh, some Danny, Danny Leva, changes. that's the young kid. Right. I think you're right that they have to bring through somebody, uh, newer folks soon, but it really does seem as though they have they are approaching this. Um, they could approach this with a pretty similar team as they have in past years. Yeah, um, there's very, very few weak links on this side currently. Um, even as I'm just like scrolling through all of their 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 roster, there's a few names where I'm like, oh yeah, that player. I haven't heard their name in a while. But um, the fact that they have that depth in their squad 
to be able to be called on. For me, it's less about where do they go from here. It's where do these players tr- get into the starting lineup. So the um, uh, Buana is another player that showed a lot of promise. He's 22. Um, Justin Dillon, the 24-year-old forward, we've seen a little bit of him throughout the season. Leva, Danny Leva, who's 16. Um, and then I saw there's another kid in here. They've had a 17-year-old. Oh, um, Ocampo Chavez. Like, are those players going to be able to see some more minutes and start to work their way into the roster a little bit more? But for me, see, again, they've just they've got the foundation there. Why would you change? much. I mean, literally, they could they could just sit on this squad for next season and do nothing, and I feel like they'd have a, a really good chance of reaching the cup final again. We will be coming at you in two weeks as we switch to our off-season um, schedule, and we could, there's a lot to say about to further wrap up the season now that we know where everything is and, and, and who is in these positions. But uh, I have had a lot of fun this year, and I've had a lot of fun uh, talking about it with you. Yeah, I feel like um, just in terms of the, I mean the 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 season itself, I fe- I felt like outside of having to talk an awful lot about Nazis this season, um, and <laughs> clubs not necessarily doing the right thing, and the league not always doing the right thing. This for me has been a probably like the most enjoyable soccer season of MLS that I've had. And that includes a white cap season that has just been completely miserable and ended with me giving up my season's oh, tickets. True. So like that, I feel like that's a, that's a lot to, that says a lot about the league given the team I actually follow mm. just really pooped the bed. Um, before we kind of sign off, I just want for for you. I mean, we're gonna do an, an uh, probably some of this in the off season, but f- for you, how do you kind of summarize this season, both in terms of the the podcast and the the actual play on the pitch? What 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 are your sort of like takeaways as you know the trophy is lifted today? I think that this was um, a. A very interesting midway point for a couple of teams and the end of the eras for a couple of others. Um, the I would say that, that more than anything else, we began the season focused on a couple of teams buoyed by a couple of specific players. And as the year went on, it was the... Um, the season of teams fighting with themselves and fighting with their own fans and fighting with, you know, working in almost counterproductive methods. And, and you can't, and this was the, the, even though a lot of it came from Seattle, you know, one of the, the, the final posts on Deadspin, RIP, is, uh, was talking about, um, Seattle being a win, Seattle making the the final and winning the title as being, you know, a win for those supporters who, you know, you want to talk about uh, Merritt Paulson screaming, you lost this for us at his fans, allegedly, yeah. you know, um, Seattle is a team that also went up against its supporters and, and tried to try to nego- tried to enforce that policy and, and um, 
I don't really think that you could ever complain about something. Put that down to the fans being a distraction. Because no team, if distractions were real, if, if this kind of distraction was a real thing that you should feel bad about, there's no team, there's a few teams that should be as affected as Seattle. But the teams that, the teams that eventually Seattle went with it and um, they found success, the, the teams, I think that it's so interesting because so many teams have so much in the way of sports medicine and, and, and teams are spending money on actual players. But when you talk about mentality, right, it's that togetherness and that ability to stick through in tough situations that help Seattle win. Yeah. And when you saw a team go from nothing to, or like, uh, like a, you know, a dead stall, like San Jose in New England started the team with, it's that feeling of being able to um, come together and, and reach for that goal that allows teams to, to, you know, make the change because everybody wants every obviously everybody that's losing games wants to not lose games and they would like to change their situation by winning more games but actually finding what the substance of that change is that makes you more likely to win a game week in week out um is a lot harder and i think that you can look at the teams that were able to make huge turnarounds and think that they did have everybody you know, moving in the same direction. They were, if they had squabbles, they were able to move past the squabbles. And if you look at teams that continuously fire their coaches, Montreal, they, uh, that didn't work for them. Not so much. Yeah. No, it's it, no. consistency. Um, and, uh, you know, team unity is, is there for sure. Um, but I, I also, I like your point. I, I think uh, my MLS MVP uh, for 2019 is the supporters groups. That game was fun for me. Yeah. It kept my faith in the game when uh, that faith was shaken a lot by club decisions and league decisions. Um, it was nice to see supporter groups come together and and really publicly fiercely own what matters to people about this sport and about the community around it. Well, we, uh, we all love a league that loves to get fiercely owned. <laughs> uh, and uh, it'll be a, uh, a longer winter than normal because they're, we're finishing in November and not December. Um, but of course, we will have more analysis of the season that's gone and the season to come over the course of the winter. Stay warm, everybody. And, uh, and uh, keep coming back here. We'll have some interesting conversations. And until then, when can we find you online? Where can we find you online? How can we find you online? Uh, you can find me online uh, at That's So MLS on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts and wherever you find podcasts. Where can we find you? You can find me online at Team Bates on Twitter, www.team-bates.com. I'm an editor at Howler Magazine, whatahowler.com. And yeah, 
That's sumlost.com. Rate, review, and subscribe. Do those things. And until don't get sent off. Hooray!